You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Katie Burke. Today on the show, I have Dan Thiel to discuss a little more of the history of Ducks Unlimited and mostly the history prior to Ducks Unlimited. Today on the show, we're going to talk about Jay Norwood Darling. But first, welcome to the show, Dan. Thank you, Katie. Great to be back. Great. So, Jay Norwood Darling was born in 1876. And I guess what most people, when they first hear him, well, they think Jay Ding Darling. And he's most famous for the duck stamp. But he had quite a life leading up to that point. So I guess let's go all the way back to the beginning. He was born in Michigan, but most of them know him from Iowa. So how does he get from Michigan to Iowa? His father was a minister, and his father was a successful minister, and he followed the congregation. And in that particular church, they first moved to Elkhart, Indiana. Then they moved to Iowa. And to put in context, Iowa in that location at that time was very much the western border. And in his childhood memory, he actually saw Native Americans. He saw streams that had not been polluted. He saw fields that had not been plowed. He saw massive herds of bison. So he was really a part of the American West at a very transformational time. That experience had a huge impact on him not much later in his life when he began his career. When he is in Iowa, he goes to, um, I forgot the name of the school that he goes to. So he went to Yankton College. Yeah, Yankton College. And, and then he moves. There to are him. some wonderful stories about his behavior. And he was both uh, tall, handsome, articulate, gifted, athletic, but he was a prankster. And it was his just inherent behavior as a prankster that got him thrown out of Yankton. It's a great story. Apparently, the president of the college kept a buggy and a buggy horse tethered at all time to a hitching post so that he could use it when he needed to. Well, just like you might borrow an unattended car on a college campus, they, Ding Darling, borrowed the president's horse and buggy. And he then proceeded to engage in racing contests using the president's horse and buggy. And everything would have been fine, except he wore distinctive cufflinks. And in the bottom of the buggy, they found his cufflink. So they brought him forward and they said, it is time for you to leave Yankton College. So, and, and that was actually a pretty good experience for him to be expelled from college. Uh, he then found a family member. He went to work in the family business. He had an opportunity to... Uh, go to a new location. He hunted, he fished, he he grew up a little bit. And eventually, he attended Beloit College in Beloit, Wisconsin. And if you dig deep into his biography, 
when he was at Beloit, he almost completely paid for his tuition by his singing ability, his violin and mandolin ability. And he sang at weddings, he sang at churches, he sang at funerals, and it was described that on Sunday he was the busiest boy in town because he would run into several different churches, sing, and then move on to the next church. And in his biography, it identifies that he always had plenty of money because of his singing ability. So, And he gets in trouble at Beloit as well. He is suspended from Beloit for a year, and this is the earliest stages of his cartoon adventures. And um, he was never a good student academically, but he was a very popular student. He had an incredible talent for drawing, and he determined that it would be great fun to draw caricatures of various faculty members. The caricatures were so accurate that when the yearbook was published, the faculty were outraged that this young student had made fun of them with these caricatures. That led to another experience of being expelled. Um, And again, this expelled period was very pivotal in his life. While his father was a minister, and he was certainly not a wealthy man, but they they were very frugal, they were very hardworking, and the father believed that experiences outweighed almost anything else in life. And he was determined that his family would have experiences rather than material possessions. And they go to Europe for several months, and it's kind of that grand tour of Europe. And the four of them did it together. Each member of the family put in $400. And, you know, I don't know how you convert what money today would have been back in that era, but $400 was a lot of money. And he earned it by doing chores, by raking hay, by working at a farm, and by his singing ability. And he also sold a couple of watercolors. So he scratches together $400. Each member of the family puts in $400. They go to Europe. The European adventure really had an incredible influence on his life. And as you said in the introduction, everyone knows Ding Darling today as the individual who created the duck stamp, the federal duck stamp. If you put in context in his life, the federal duck stamp was one very small part of an incredible life. And what he saw in Europe really expanded his horizon. It developed an appreciation for other cultures. Those experiences and the things that he saw on that trip had an impact on the rest of his life. When he comes back, what does he then transition into? Does he go straight into newspapers or does he, because I know, you know, in college, his original aspiration was to become a doctor. So obviously that's not what happens. Do you know when that transition is made from committing into newspapers? Yes. So when he graduated, he became, his first job, and I believe it was titled Cub Reporter. And I don't know if the world has Cub Reporters today, but, you know, we need to put in context that in this era... There was no television. There was no radio. The world received their information from newspapers. Most cities had multiple newspapers. Most cities had a morning edition. Some had an afternoon edition and some had an evening edition. So there was a lot of newspaper work in the United States during that period. He's 23 years old and he lands a position at the Sioux City Journal. And he did everything. He he, uh, laid lead type. He wrote stories, he took photographs, and it was actually 
If you go back in his biography, remember the camera at this time period was still a fairly new invention and not many people had cameras. Before he went to Europe, he saved money and I believe it was $11, he bought a camera and he learned to use that camera. And a lot of the photographs that he took in Europe were still part of the family estate when he died. That camera was also part of what he took with him when he was a cub reporter. And in the town of Sioux City, there was a very high-profile trial. And the editor of the newspaper sent Ding to the trial to get a photograph of the judge and one of the attorneys. And one of the hiccups with the camera, at the very minute he took the photograph, the attorney covered his face. And, of course, the photo was not usable. He was devastated because he knew he had to get a, an image of that attorney. So he returned to the, to the newspaper office and he drew a sketch. And that sketch was perfect. And the editor of the newspaper was very pleased with the sketch. And then his sketches kind of became the norm for that newspaper. He became so successful at the small Sioux City newspaper that a much larger newspaper, the Des Moines Register, recruited him. And at about this same time, he becomes married. He needs more money. He needs, uh, he not doesn't need, but he wants the exposure to a, lar- a larger audience. And he found it in Des Moines. So he goes to the Des Moines Register. This is in 1906. They doubled his salary to the unheard of salary of $50 a week. And Kind of in the biography, it indicates he had more money than he knew what to do with working for $50 a week. And he very quickly became the highest paid person on the newspaper except for the editorial staff. So he he was very successful very early. He began doing cartoons, and his cartoons became, they absolutely surpassed his work as a journalist. And he focused then on drawing cartoons. Go back to what I said earlier about his travel to Europe. His cartoons were on a world scale. They were not local Des Moines stories. He drew political cartoons and civic cartoons and conservation cartoons. In his lifetime, he did over 15,000 cartoons that were published in newspapers. Again, his fame caught up with him and he was recruited by one of the major New York newspapers. And with great fanfare, he moved his small family to New York City. And he loved it. He absolutely loved the experience of living in the largest city in the country. He loved the nightlife, the theater. He loved meeting famous people. At a very young age, he had become a celebrity. And because of his celebrity status, he was meeting the author's the journalists, uh, the Broadway actors of that era, the, uh, the politicians of that era, everyone knew who Ding Darling was, and he was part of that social set. One of the challenges, though, was living in New York City. Yeah. And it kind of go back, you can take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. In his heart and at his depth, he was a hunter and a fisherman, and he longed for the great outdoors. And so after a fairly short period... He leaves New York. He gets his old job with the Des Moines Register. And it's from the Des Moines Register 
that he really develops and, and blossoms into this international um, cartoonist. And I believe, Katie, his cartoons were covered in over 150 daily newspapers around the United States. So he was making a great salary as a cartoonist. He made an even greater salary because he was syndicated. When did he get syndicated? Right after New York? Uh, right after he moved back to Des Moines. He, he landed very quickly and immediately discovered there was great demand for his work. So, you know, in those early years, you know, he developed a close relationship with uh, Teddy Roosevelt, which, um, as we all know, is a great conservationist in his own right. So how does that influence Ding on his, car- his conservation cartoons and his conservation awareness? So I think it's important to note that um, his primary relationship, he, he was an adoring fan of Teddy Roosevelt. His connectivity was with Franklin Roosevelt. And it was Franklin Roosevelt in the 30s who created, I believe it was called the Beck Commission. Yes, so prior to that, prior yes. to that, it was all about Teddy Roosevelt. Okay. And one of his most famous cartoons is that cartoon of Teddy Roosevelt. So when Theodore Roosevelt died, one of his most famous cartoons was Teddy Roosevelt on a horseback in his full cowboy regalia, riding off into the sunset and, and waving goodbye. So he was a uh, he he really bought into the conservation ethic that Teddy Roosevelt demonstrated. Right. Because, well, he also was friends with President Hoover as well for a while. Yes, he was. Because um, that's, they, apparently there's a little secret in his signature. There's an X. That's correct. For Mrs. Hoover. Because he was a, let's not forget before we get to FDR, because it comes to be important, his politics during this time. Because his politics do not align with FDR. No, he is a arch conservative. He's a Republican. And but because he had such respect for what the president was attempting to do and because of his desire to be a part of the solution, he put his Republican feelings aside and joined a Democratic administration. There's one thing I, I forgot to share, Katie, and it's kind of important because it had, a, it had an impact on his life, and that is Ding Darling was plagued by health issues. Mm-hmm. He had health issues as a, as a young man, uh, he had mysterious illnesses where he had tremendous stomach pains. But at some point, I believe it was the fall from a horse in an, in an elbow that didn't heal properly. He was beginning to lose all ability to draw with his right hand and his right arm. If you can't draw, it's very, very hard to be a cartoonist. And so when he would draw cartoons, he would draw them on a very large scale. His arm caused him great pain. And to compensate for the great pain when he used his arm, he taught himself to draw with his left hand. And the only way that he could make the left hand work even close as well as the right hand, he drew on a much smaller scale. And after he drew almost a miniature version of the cartoon, another artist would come in and using some kind of a mirror and drawing uh, device, they would throw that image on the on the wall and that guy would draw it to the size it needed to be. So it's important to note that um, at some point while he was in New York, he had surgery. And if you look back at that time period, surgery of any type was a 
was a pretty big effort. Right. And the surgery was very successful, and he regained full use of his arm. The reason I share that situation about his, his arm and his health, part of the reason that his time in Washington as head of the U.S. Biological Survey was, was fairly brief was because of his health. He simply was not healthy, and it was determined that he needed to get out of that environment. And so, once again, he escapes Washington and goes back to Des Moines, right. and his health returns. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. So let's let's get into, because um, it's the big part of our conversation and we probably should focus on, is that time in the BET committee and then on to the biological survey. Because those two things have a very big impact on our history. So without those two things, we wouldn't have the Ducks Limited history we have. So let's let's go into that. So the BET committee, which we have talked about, the BET committee was composed of Ding Darling and who else was on that? That we have a founding father, we have a founding member whose last name was BET. I believe that Aldo Leopold was also Aldo on the Leopold was on there, and then oh, I can't think of Beck's last first name, but he was the Beck, Beck was a founding member of Ducks Unlimited, and that was formed in 1934 by uh, Franklin Roosevelt. But the primary driver of that committee did not end up being Beck; it ended up being Ding Darling. Yes, and one of the things you learn about Ding Darling, whether he was in the newsroom, whether he was in New York, he became a ringleader. Every time he ever got with a group of people, again, he was tall, he was charming, and he he simply had natural leadership skills. And you're right, he did take over that committee, and the federal duck stamp program was his idea. The art was his art. And if you look at art that he created, and it's it's interesting to note that he didn't perceive himself as an artist, and he always looked on his art, he was a little skeptical of his own talent. And if, if you look at some of his cartoons, he also made fun of modern art. And he didn't, he didn't have much appreciation for modern art. And he had very little, he had no art training. And so he was a little intimidated by the artist of the day because he wasn't an artist. And if you look at his portfolio, there's actually not a a great amount of art that he created. Uh, it's interesting to note that the art that he did create most often had to do with outdoor and and most definitely with waterfowl. And, you know, we should say that the duck stamp program has gone on to be the, it is considered the most efficient and most effective federal taxation program ever established. And I can't quote the numbers, I mean, it's in the billions of dollars that the duck stamp program has generated. But what was what started as a $1 stamp, then a $2 stamp, a $3, a $5, and today a $25 stamp has paid incredible dividends for conservation and for wetlands and waterfowl. And over the years, and what was interesting, over the years, um, other 
federal agencies have attempted to hijack these funds. And when Ding Darling wrote the program, they wrote it in such a way that it could never be taken over by another program. It can, they, those funds can't be hijacked. And that in itself is a, is a pretty significant accomplishment. So when he goes through this with the Beck Committee, basically to summarize, uh, Thomas Beck and Otto Leopold kind of disagree on what should happen, like where how these funds should be, what should be the method of how they go about solving this problem with waterfowl in the country. So Ding Darling takes over, submits their proposal to FDR. It gets approved. And from there, I mean, I think they asked for like $12 million to begin for wildlife restoration, but I think they only get a million is what they're gifted. That is correct. So, but it was a verbal, it was a verbal promise. They weren't promised a million. They get a verbal promise from FDR. And one of my, one of the stories I always, I like about that was when he was, and hopefully I get it right because I'm summarizing, but when he got, right after he got appointed to being head of the biological survey, one of the things is he had to find that money. And he went around Washington trying to find that money and, and you may can correct me, but one of the guys finally that he got to go get that money from was about to leave for Europe, and he basically like hounded him until he got that a million dollars. That is correct. Yeah, <laughs> he was tenacious, yeah. and and this this was worth every effort he could put into it. And if you look at the role that the biological survey was at the time, it was actually a fairly small, insignificant new program. Today, it's the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, I have been to the National Conservation Leadership Training Center, and he is absolutely one of the heroes of everyone in the conservation community. Um, they actually have an incredible amount of his physical artifacts, his art, uh, items from his home. One thing about Ding Darling, he left an incredible legacy. And it's interesting, Katie, that while he did over 15,000 cartoons, I believe 150 of them, only 150 had a conservation theme. But but those 150 cartoons are his most famous cartoons. Uh, I don't know that anyone cares what he did about, you know, the European Union or issues in war. They cared about conservation. And it was interesting as an artist, um, he did very few color images and, and the very few color pieces of his work, uh, very rare, hard to find. Uh, when he when he did do etching, and, and the whole etching process, we could do an entire show on what it is to be, to etch yeah. art. It's very complicated. Yeah. And, and he mastered it. And if you look at his plates, they became more and more complex as he became more comfortable in this medium. And just the world knows that... Um, Every year, Ducks Unlimited has an event called Into the Vault. And Into the Vault is an online fundraising program we do in November. And Into the Vault is designed to offer our members an opportunity to bid and buy very unique items, old shotguns, old decoys. We've actually become very good friends with the estate of Ding Darling. And through that relationship, they have given us several items that we will permanently display at national headquarters. They've also given us some duplicates. And so we will sell five Ding Darling restrikes 
in the upcoming Into the Vault auction. So if, if you're a Ding Darling <laughs> collector, this is a very unique and very rare opportunity to both see these items and, and bid on these items. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I think about his, some of his cartoons are very, like I can picture them. They're very synonymous with him. After the, he did the biological survey and you talk about the training camp and things like that. You know, he does quite a few things there. Um, but one of those things is expanding, I want to, Get the wrong, but basically the university programs across mm-hmm. the United States, um, which was, I think there was just the one at the time. Right. Yeah, and he, like, so that, he does that. He also puts people in office in the biological survey. They go on to spend many years there. So he leaves, he goes back to the register. Mm-hmm. Then he comes back again into Washington. And I don't, that, that part of the story is a little bit, because he has, you said it comes U.S. Fish and Wild. He has a play in that, but I am So he not. does a couple more things. So we should never forget, <clears throat> as a political cartoonist, he won two Pulitzer Prizes. Yes. And and the Pulitzer Prize in that era was, was a huge accomplishment. And to win two of them and to win them decades apart was pretty incredible. So first and foremost, as a journalist, that is a significant accomplishment. Katie, he went on to... He was one of the early founders of the Isaac Walton League, but also the National Wildlife Federation. And the National Wildlife Federation is pretty close in stature to Ducks Unlimited, and he was the founder. And it's interesting if you know the history of the National Wildlife Federation, their early fundraising was all based on stamps. And they had stamps for all manner of birds, reptiles, mammals, and it was kind of based on what Ding Darling had done for the federal duck stamp. The early stamps were created by Ding Darling, so he had a he had a huge impact uh, and a and probably an equally large legacy when you consider the great work that the National Wildlife Federation has done. He started that, and he's the one who gave them at the time their greatest fundraising tool. So uh, he was a member of Boone and Crockett. Um, Even in his latter years, he was still an active hunter and fisherman. Uh, For those that have the opportunity to travel to Florida, one of the great locations is Captiva and Sanibel, the Ding Darling National Wildlife Refuge. I've visited a couple times. It's incredible. The material culture from his home, uh, the park itself, I believe, is 1,500 acres. That that land would be worth hundreds of millions of dollars in development. And it's this magnificent wildlife refuge that that he wanted preserved. That's amazing. Yeah, because he just went there on a whim, right? He was sick and decided to go, like, the story that I read was basically the mobile home had come out. Yes. And he was hadn't been feeling well, was under the weather. They thought he needed better better weather. And he goes to Florida and he ends up there. And he made almost an annual pilgrimage back to Captiva. And if you look at what Florida was during that time period, pretty pretty remote, pretty wild and woolly at the time, I've seen some wonderful photographs of him wearing a white shirt and a tie walk, walking on the beach. So <laughs> um, truly one of the great characters in conservation. Yeah, so before we go, before I say bye, what would you like to add about Dean Darling that we haven't hit? Have we hit everything? Well, so what I've attempted to do, and I've not had success with it, is to identify any connectivity between Ding Darling and Ducks Unlimited. And I've scoured 
early documents, and, and I really find no mention of Ding. I find great mention of the federal duck stamp program, but I can't find that Ding was ever a member of Ducks Unlimited. I would be surprised if he was not a member of Ducks Unlimited. Unfortunately, our records really only begin in 1968. And just a, a point of trivia, Ducks Unlimited's office was on Fifth Avenue in New York from 1937 to 1968. In 1968, they moved to the Chicago area, Long Grove. And so the records that we still have access to, they don't begin till 1968. So I, I just can't find that documented connectivity, but you can't do what Ding Darling did and not have had some association with Duck Sullivan. He would have been contemporaries with Joseph Knapp, many of our founding members, that they all crossed the same path. Right. Yeah, that's interesting that, yeah, they don't have any record of it. But you know he had to at least... Absolutely, had to. Had to have conversations about what Ducks Limited at, at was. At some point it would be doing. interesting. And, uh, you know, in doing my background for this, we discovered a master's thesis written, I believe, at Iowa... No, I think it was Indiana. Yes. And in reading that, the correspondence that, that, they had, that he had access to was incredible. I can't help but think that in that correspondence there's probably a letter or two to Joseph Knapp or uh, Arthur Bartling. Yeah, that would be interesting to find out. So if you're listening, <laughs> give us a call. Well, thank you, Dan, for coming back on the show. It was fun. And we'll continue this with two more episodes to continue our discussion with Ducks Limits early history. Thank you, Katie. Thank you to our special guest, Dan Thiel. Thank you to our producer, Chris. And thank you to you, our listener, for supporting wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.